Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Tuesday, April, April 18th. Yeah, it's tax day. That's how you know it is. <laughs> 2023. Yeah. It's also where we live. Right. Kind of an exquisite time of year. Oh, really? Yes. I, I think I think if you live in the Northeast, you live in the Northeast to see the fall and see the spring. Ah, okay. Sort of, yeah. Um. Because it's just, uh, it's just, especially right now, mm-hmm. things, there's color, the green leaves are beginning to happen, and the, the leaves at this time are just an amazing color. They're this baby, baby green, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just uh, amazing. It's an amazing atmosphere, and uh, we're having, we've been having kind of warm weather. Yeah, but now we're, we're seasonal now. So Now it's a little better. You yeah. need those... 60 degree days yeah. when everything's just opening up. Yeah. And so, uh, and I remember April 18th because at some point I decided that uh, April 18th was the pinnacle for our crab apple tree in Cranberry. All right. And is it still the case? I don't know. We'll have to go well, see. You were there yesterday, honey. I, you know, I was not thinking about trees <laughs> yesterday, but. Uh, I, I would think I would I would sort of plan in my mind. All right, dinner party yeah. should be around April eighteenth. That's the time. All right. Well, good. Do we have anything scheduled today? Uh, yes, we're doing the podcast. No, no today. dinner party. We're, we're trying an experiment. We're doing it in the morning. Yeah, I haven't. Okay. Yeah, I haven't still haven't figured out why it's not tax day on April fifteenth. I don't know what happened to that. But uh, yes, go ahead. Was it on a bad day? Yeah, Saturday. Saturday. But, yeah, but Monday could have been it. I don't get it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You were there saying... There must be a reason. No. <laughs> Did you Google it? No, I wouldn't say there must be a reason. It's the government. Oh, oh, it's it, the it government. doesn't have to be a reason. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. What, what were you getting into? Nothing that I know of. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So, look. Uh, here, here's... Here, well, I don't know what this says about me, but here's what ticked me off this week. <laughs> So this is the cranky old man. Segment. Yeah, look, we stay away from these. People don't understand what we cut out. We cut out, you know, we start off with three things I'm outraged about, and we throw those out because no one would be interested in them. And after ten minutes, I'm not. Well, we all have our rants. Yes. So, so we therefore, don't do. we don't, you know, we don't need to we put don't that need in. to share them. We don't need to okay. share them. So, but this is uh, almost substantive. Okay. So there's a new production of Camelot. And, uh, you know, it's it's very uh, moneyed production. It's, it's uh, at uh, Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Center. You know, it's Bartlett Share. He's done this before, My, Far- My Fair Lady. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, it's going to have a big orchestra, and et cetera, et cetera. It's got stars, something like that. And we talked before about the Aaron Sorkin rewrite. Right. And, and, and there's an yeah. Aaron Sorkin rewrite of it. And uh, so it gets reviewed by the Times. And you figure it's going to be very good. Uh, maybe not great, but very good, you know. And I only say maybe not great because we, certainly Tams and I, have seen Camelot several times. Uh, we've seen Richard Burton. We've seen Richard Harris. We've seen Robert Goulet. You know, so we're not, it, it's never going to pack the punch of something that's new, right? To you. To me, to, to us. Right. That okay. first time right. you see and hear, right. especially in person. But it's, it's uh, even though it's still, you know, people are good. Right. Music's still good. Yeah. Um, it's not. Not the same. Not the it's same. not going to knock you over. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's a hallowed musical. So Jesse Green reviews it in the Times and he hates it. 
And uh, I don't mind it. I don't care what Jesse Green thinks of it. And I have no money invested in this. And Jesse Green... He doesn't really hate it, dude. He, he doesn't like it. He's, he's pretty negative. A, he's not impressed. No, no, no. He, no, he is... He, he likes... It, it's... It, <laughs> it's not... He loves the singers. He loves the acting. You know, everything's fine. But he said, there's something wrong with the musical. The musical doesn't work. And I'm saying to myself, what? How could that possibly be? What do you mean the musical doesn't work? And uh, his thing is, he says, they brought in Aaron Sorkin in but he failed to turn it around. All Aaron Sorkin did, according to Green, was you know make Guinevere a little more of a uh, stronger character. He compares her to Catherine Hepburn in this, uh, which no one's going to complain about. But he doesn't, according to Green, attack the central problem in the play. And uh, the play, the problem, according to him, is this, is that... Um, you can't when there's a, supposed to be there's a love triangle between Arthur and Guinevere on the one hand and Lancelot who arrives on a horse and Guinevere's attracted to uh, Lancelot and then you have all you know all, all the difficulties. Well, he says that's not a love triangle. That's a flat line. That's a quote. Flat line. Why? Because anyone would fall in love with Lancelot. He's a very good looking guy. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, and, and therefore there's no center. At the center, there's no there, there. There's, there's no, no tension. There's no tension. And I'm saying to myself, what? Oh, what? I mean, the, the idea that Guinevere, who is devoted to Arthur, uh, is now distracted and ultimately captivated by Lancelot, uh, traditionally at least, creates enormous tension. I mean, she, there's no tension. She's just going to leave her husband. Who cares? That guy's better looking. No tension. And on top of that, she realizes that by doing that, she's kind of undermining the entire government because they put in all these laws, Arthur did, uh, that makes it punishable by death to uh, commit adultery. And, and, but, but she's just going to do it. And there's no tension. I mean, you can, it's redu- ridiculous. How could Jesse Green not see this? And, and on his part, it's not a small thing in the review. It's on that point that the whole musical fails because there's no reason to sit there. There's, there's no, uh, you know, uh, no mystery, you know, back and forth. There's nothing, nothing to resolve. I mean, you can't be that ridiculous. And what kills me about this is, and he's criticizing Sorkin. He doesn't want to criticize Sorkin. He just said, I guess there was nothing Sorkin could do. Well, you know, as we've discussed before, I know Sorkin a little bit, but everybody's familiar with Sorkin. It's not there's nothing he could do. There was nothing he had to do. Sorkin looked at this and he said, yeah, well, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's at the center of a lot of musicals that uh, keeps Shakespearean tragedy going. That's cool. Uh, I'll, I'll buff up the rest of it. There's nothing that has to be done. So he kills the musical on that. He's bored because anybody would do what Guinevere does. I mean, I think it's kind of crazy. I know you're looking at me like I'm overreacting already, but it's the stupidest no, 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 review no, no. I've read in the Times. Well, no, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, whether you look at this from a, sort of a political perspective of, you know, uh, what Arthur is trying to do. And uh, so that, so there's the, the greater tension about can this government succeed? Right. Can this, uh, you know, uh, right over might idea succeed? Uh, or or just the, the simple love story aspect. I mean, it was an arranged marriage, well, it, it, but uh, she becomes committed. They're clearly fond of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then in rides Lancelot. I'm wondering if it's just uh, the fail 
on Jesse Green's part is he just sees it from a male perspective. But I'm a male. I don't, I don't understand. No, he, he sees it as a flat line because, of course, you want the newest, shiniest thing. No, no, no. What you, that's, a, that's, that's a male that's perspective. That's what guys do. Oh, yeah. get out of here. I'm they, Tamsin. You know, I'm seeing something that. prettier, no. younger. Boom. I, you know? I can't cycle. So, so, it's a, so he says, of course. Of course, it's, it's, it's got to be the dumbest you know? thing. No, no, he, he misses he misses so much of this play. It's it's startling. You said to me before, you know, I wonder if Jesse Green's right. He says that you know Arthur doesn't. Uh, you know, Lancelot's got the big songs, and Arthur's songs are more like simple patter songs. And he, and Green speculates that's because Richard Burton played the part, and they had to write it that way. And I said to you right away, that's not why. That's because of the nature of the character. Uh, Lancelot is poetry. Uh, Arthur is prose. He can only speak in prose. He's not an exciting guy. He's not going to give soaring melodies. It he's fits with what's going guy. on. He's a good guy. And he's totally and torn you, by the this thing situation. That, the thing that Sorkin would have been brought in to do, I'll tell you right now, is Guinevere is an agent of chaos in this. She's bad news. She's a spoiled little girl. They give her the song at the beginning, uh, you know, simple joys of maidenhood. Why can't knights be killing each other over me? That's her song. <laughs> There's something wrong with her, okay? And later, Agent of Chaos, she sings, you know, the lusty month of May. You know, she's a hedonist. That's fine. But she brings the whole thing kingdom down. So I thought the problem was people thought it wasn't politically correct to have a woman be the problem when she is the problem. So, so maybe, or you know, they bring a Sorka to dumb that down. But to say there's no tension... Because you know she'd live uh, leave uh, Arthur. Well, you know. it's a logical thing to do. I mean, we you know, yeah, it's like Wallace Simpson. Wallace Simpson uh, causes someone to leave the monarchy. You know, she's destroying the monarchy um, because she causes the king to fall in love with her. I mean, it, it's it's crazy to me. All right, I got that out of my system. It's done. Let's get on. But to we still else. might go see it. We might, we might, and the tickets will be cheap now because uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's it's a devastating. I'm telling you, that it's an, I, I think. Um, once people hear the music again, yeah, they'll want to hear it. Yeah, all right. It's a devastating, be, clueless review. They'll be captivated okay. because they're awfully clever songs. Well, we'll see. And uh, awfully wonderful songs. Yeah. So there's no doubt about that. Anyway, and, uh, and some people, not everybody, is as schooled in the classic musicals as we are. Mm-hmm. So it will be a fresh experience. All right. And there's a simplicity to it that uh, is you don't see in the razzle dazzle yeah. of look, most uh, modern musicals. Look, we saw we became familiar with Camelot in, in its golden age because it, it came to be a, a mirror of the Kennedy administration in the early '60s, and it was elegant. And you know, Kennedy was trying to bring a, a new panache, a new order, a new attractiveness to government. Uh, doing things in uh, in a way that people could appreciate more, perhaps, than the previous administrations. And they very much embraced in the Kennedy administration the comparisons to Camelot. So it had a certain sparkle right. when, it, when it opened. Right. And as kids, we knew the story because of the animated Sword in the Stone right. and things like that. That's, um, well, that's, so very much... Uh, yeah, that's still around. You know, and it's, yeah. it's a mythology that even if you don't uh, associate it with the Kennedy administration... Yeah. That uh, appeals yeah. to people over centuries. Um, there's no doubt about that. But uh, also, it's just fun, fun, heart-tugging stuff. Yes. Everything you're looking for. All right. So, in any event. Which uh, is not the case of the series we're watching now. 
Oh my God! Just thinking, you know, we're watching True Detective. People out there, yeah. Dan is making me watch True Detective. Well, I didn't know it was this dark. It gets dark. We keep saying it's going to turn a corner. It can't be no, this dark. No, you keep promising me it will turn a corner. It's, it's True Detective season one. Matthew McConaughey is super, but it's He's dark. Super. He is. I never watched anything with Matthew McConaughey. But I just have such a distaste he's a, he's, he, for Woody Harrelson at this point. I know, but... It's you, upsetting. you got to admit. I can't bear to see it. You have it. to admit on the air that Matthew Connie's sort of a good-looking guy. No? He's not a good-looking. He's thinner than I thought he was. Well, he's thinner than any human being. It's, it's, it's a little he, problematic. He, in his commercials, he looks bulkier. Well... Maybe it's because he's sitting down in a car. I don't know. Well, maybe he's gotten a little older. Uh, this <laughs> is a few he, years ago. Uh, yeah, he's... he's it, it is impressive in many ways, but we... We have to have a ray of light at yeah. some point. Well, we'll see. You know, the ray of light. If, if we are building up to a crescendo of darkness, no. I'm out of here. You'll <laughs> have to tell me what happens. All right. Yeah. So here's another. So the, the movie that's uh, getting uh, play now, people are going to, is Air, which is the. Uh, people are going to. Might be an overstatement. No, no, no. It is. People they, are they, really they, going yeah, yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got a big box office. Okay. Uh, and it's gotten good reviews. Maybe you might call it surprisingly good reviews from, I'll say, a majority of critics. And it's the story of the uh, contract uh, <laughs> negotiations, for lack of a better term, leading to uh, the development of the Michael Jordan sneaker. Sounds like your dream no, movie. No, 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 no. It's a contract negotiation. Well, there is that. And it's about basketball playing. That's two for three. But, but, but. I was never interested in branded sneakers. I don't understand. See, that's the problem with me. All right, here comes an old man. No, I'm not going to go into it. The holy grail on this is, are we going to get Michael Jordan's uh, endorsement on a sneaker? This is a business thing. Who would buy a sneaker with Michael Jordan's endorsement? Who cares about that? (laughs) Many, many, many Well, that's what I'm missing. But but my point is this. My point is this. There's a pushback on the film. And the pushback on the film, which some people say, wait a minute, why are we falling in love with this film? What's wrong with this country? This is a movie about capitalism. Worse than that, it's a movie about products. What happened to movies that used to be about great men as opposed to great things? And the magazine section of the Times sort of makes that observation uh, that uh, the in the old days you had biopics about brave astronauts and dogged journalists. Well, journalists have kind of killed themselves there. But uh, genius mathematicians is one movie like that. And whatever generals, presidents, and now what do we got? We got a, a product promoter, and frankly, it's more about the products than it is about the promoter. But what I does this say about us? God, explain explain, explain it to everybody else. <laughs> because all these people yeah. are flawed. Yeah. And you can't, uh, apparently, you can't um, embrace or uh, pay tribute to the flawed characters, right? You open anymore. you open yourselves so up, yeah, to to the criticism that it turns out that this person you know, didn't file their tax returns or whatever they did. So, but if you you can uh, endorse things, you can tell stories of things. No one uh, is going to expect uh, things to be especially, uh, yeah. I think that's moral or immoral. Well, or whatever. That, that's clearly uh, part of it. I, I do think that's part of it. I think also. I don't get it. It's the flawed aspects of people in life that are interesting, that yeah. are compelling, that are relatable. Yeah. You know, not perfection. But anyway, it's... No, it, it's maybe that's it. It must be a fun movie. It, maybe that's it. I don't know. But I mean, you know, it's funny. So they had... You know, you say to yourself, who was it who's, who's not flawed? Who was it is not going to, 
you know, a, bio, a biography of this person is not going to get some kind of pushback because it turns out they ah, were... Ah, the good old days. The good old days. And, you know, uh, and by coincidence, there's a book about uh, Helen Keller called After the Miracle by Max Wallace. And there's a review in the, in, uh, the journal uh, called The Voice of Her Own about that book. And um, it's interesting. So the first question is, yeah. does anybody know who Helen Keller is? Well, that's interesting because the, uh, the, the article actually says, say Helen Keller has largely faded from public memory. Right. Uh, that can't be right. I mean, Helen Keller was, well, you've got to explain who Helen Keller is in case you're right. I, I, don't, I don't see how you could be, but go ahead. Would be it's Helen Keller's just Helen Keller. She she was uh, uh, she had a disease when she was very young yeah. that uh, destroyed her sight and her hearing. Right. right. Yeah. And um, so we all know about her because of the Miracle Worker. Right. It was a play. It was a musical, not a musical movie, um, telling the story of how she learned uh, to communicate. Through her teacher, whose name I've forgotten, Anne Sullivan. Anne Sullivan. Right. Okay, and uh, for you know, for us, I guess because of the play, um, she was a celebrity. Yeah, you know, it's not just the play; it's not just the play. There's uh, they talk about her meeting with the President Kennedy in 1961. She lived until 1968, so she right. she was still alive when we were young people, right? And but she and was a, read, a know, famous, famous person. She was a celebrity. Yeah, she was, and. Uh, she um, she was definitely in those you know those little uh, biographies that were in the school library yeah. you know and she was held up as uh, a great example of overcoming right. uh, you know the ultimate example uh, of overcoming difficulties right. challenges physical uh, whatever well it turns out uh, yeah so I don't know maybe you could have a Helen Keller story today I mean you probably could. You probably could. I mean, the the book makes a point that the I mean, the book, the article sort of suggests that the um, story, um, the miracle worker, was largely about the teacher more than it was Helen, because Helen was kind of a cipher, and the teacher is doing all these strange and wonderful things to bring Helen to life. Um, but uh, make the point that if you focus on Helen's life after her teacher died, um, she was a political activist. Um, and uh, a socialist. She makes the point that she's extremely uh, progressive or communist. She uses both words in this article. Uh, and to the point that the um, uh, organization for the blind that she was representing... Uh, pulled away from her. Pulled away from her, told her not to represent them anymore because it was too unattractive, uh, whatever. So maybe uh, that's a problem in people's eyes. Maybe it's something they want to embrace. I don't know. But she certainly uh, you know, became her own woman. And it's kind of an interesting article. Well, maybe that's the next biopic, Tamsin. Helen Keller. Why not? Helen Keller is an adult. Would be because uh, I don't know if she's really flawed enough to be interesting. Oh, I think she well, fills maybe. the bill in terms of you want somebody. To, well, maybe you want somebody. Maybe to the word isn't flawed, but just you know, there's a little texture. There's a little. Uh, it's not so simple. But to me, it's more interesting that I mean, she was a household word yeah. in a way that I don't think she is today. And I'd be interested to see well, what, what, how familiar... We haven't talked to the kids about it. Well, but I'd be interested to see uh, how familiar the name is to our what, kids. What it really tells you, what? 25 years from now, no one's going to know what an Air Jordan is. 
That's what it tells you. Well, that's indeed possible. Nobody yeah. knows what a Jenny Lind bed is. You know, what Jenny is a Jenny Lind bed? Jenny Lind is Jenny Lind was singer, a great singer, a yeah, popular, yeah, popular right. singer. You know, the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and uh, um, you know, they named a bed after her. Oh, I mean, really? she had a lot of things were popular because of her. And now, who would even know? All right, right. We we actually have slept in a Jenny Lind bed. Our first. Tamsin, our first marital bed. Oh, 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 Tamsin. It was a three-quarter bed. A small, cozy bed. All right, all right. Move on, move on, move on. I think my mother still has that bed. Really? Possibly, yeah. Oh, all right, so... So here's something. Oh, here's something. that This would be great to go see. Museum update, okay? At the Metropolitan Museum on the roof is an installation by a young artist, Lauren Halsey. Uh, of um, what the Times calls an Afrofuturist temple. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know, you go up to the roof of the uh, Met and you can see all over yeah. the Central Park. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a glorious spot to be. And uh, so they, um, the Met, I think, actually commissioned uh, this work. And it's a, a very interesting uh, juxtaposition of uh, kind of modern, the ephemeral nature of modern black culture and the sort of eternal life of Egyptian architecture. Mm-hmm. And there are, are sphinxes, there are columns, there's the sort of inscribed uh, decoration of the columns, mm-hmm. uh, um, typical of uh, Egyptian architecture. Um but it incorporates, uh, for instance, the sphinxes have the faces of uh, uh, the artist's friends and relatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the um, there are heads of, you know, uh, in the form of uh, Egyptian gods and goddesses uh, that, again, have, uh, you know, sort of modern black uh, uh, features from, you know, from her... Uh, family friends and family on them so it's you know it's again a fun intersection of classic art what we might call classic art um historical art and modern culture uh in a very interesting way and the um artist was described as someone who's committed to collecting and preserving traces of black popular culture Okay, which is, I'm I'm lost. There's, but, there's, they're using using black popular culture in the actual pieces yeah, of art. Okay, so the inscriptions, yeah. the inscriptions, the decorations are graffiti with phrases from um, you know black modern life, uh, advertising phrases, uh, just uh, little clips, little uh, quips, mm-hmm. uh, names. Uh, Etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to the hieroglyphs mm-hmm. uh, in uh, you know Egyptian and, architecture that would tell the story of you know prayers to be said or and are there um, are, are there people who are modern people who are featured in in the art or are there any uh, like likenesses of people no no, no. Okay. well the likenesses are the likenesses are just the sphinx okay the sphinx happened the face of the sphinx happens to be the face of her mother or her okay. brother right. okay as opposed to um, the pharaoh so um, it you know it um, it's a monumental piece it may I think eventually be moved to have a permanent home 
in L.A. or somewhere. She's L.A. based. Uh, and, and so and she being again the artist name uh, Lauren Halsey. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, so hopefully it will be installed somewhere like at the Getty. Everybody or like, can what? like the Getty Museum. No, 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 no. More like at a public park or oh, really? something. Okay. Where it really has um, that's what I would vote for. Mm. Where it's really accessible to people. You know, mm. it, it's still people have to gird themselves to the task of going to a museum, mm-hmm. going up the elevator to see this at the vet. It much more uh, fun and mm. interesting, and uh, to make this this kind of art available mm-hmm. to everyone. Um, and so, uh, again, I like this idea that it is the juxtaposition of the modern, the ephemeral, with the, uh, you know, sort of the eternally sort of worshipped uh, All right. Sounds good. art. So, yeah. And, it, and I think it would just be a terrific experience up there on the top of the roof they usually they have a bar there have a drink um, look out at cleopatra's needle an actual obelisk from egypt um and uh, compare across the millennia Uh well that's interesting um, this art listen they have a bar there i know you're there you're ready to go and and it's a beautiful time oh this is open air what open air yes it's, it's at exquisite time to yeah. be looking at Central Okay. Park. You almost have me sold. You almost can get me to a museum. So just 10 seconds on this. We talked a while ago about robotic dogs. They were great, according to the people who developed them, robo- uh, crime tool or rescue tool. It's just a uh, contraption. Uh, looks like an old Erector set, but it's a little more sophisticated. It's in the shape of a dog, and it moves, and it's got an engine, and it's remote what, controlled. What are and- they supposed to do? It can go in and uh, look for bombs. It can, oh, okay. uh, it can uh, hunt down criminals. It can. They say it help. They're, so there's they're no talking about a rescue. It needs to be a dog. It could be just a could little, be anything. Like could, a Roomba. In fact, you know, there's no reason even to think it is a dog. It's just got four legs, and uh, you could say it looks like a reptile. I don't know. It, it, it's not that dog like. Okay. There's no fur. Right. But they they call it a but robot. But they had dog. them out before. They had them out before. And people said, this is too much like RoboCop. Uh, this is dystopian. This is awful. These are the, it just gives everybody a creepy feeling. And notwithstanding, it was effective against crime and useful for rescue. And it was mean to dogs. Uh, was it? I don't know. It, may, it gives you're dogs making stuff, a bad image. You're, you're making stuff up, and I'm trying to give a serious discussion here. Okay. Let me put it this way. De Blasio said... We can't have this anymore. They're creepy, alienating, and sends the wrong message. So if you consider the source, uh, that might be an endorsement of the product. But the fact of the matter is that uh, the new mayor, uh, Eric Adams, is bringing them back. Digidog, Adams says, is out of the pound. And uh, the New York City authorities have bought two of them uh, for a sum of $750,000. I don't know. It doesn't sound unreasonable to me. And they're back. They're back on the street. Well, you're not going to see them too often. They're, they're for a special purpose. They'll probably show up in True Detective at some point. That never did sound like a good reason not to use them. No, it just, it's, it's just pandering. they're creepy. It's pandering to, uh, to some uh, political sensibilities. So this is, you know, either they're effective or they're not. And Adam says, uh, I think they're effective. Uh, we need every tool we can get is really what it comes down to. So they're back. So if you see something that looks like an old director set in the shape of a dog, you know what it is. Right? Stay away from it. All right, go ahead. What do you got? It's funny for a man who's not that into dogs. You often, uh, you, you end up talking about dog stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Especially robotic dogs. I'm into robotic Maybe you dogs. lean towards robotic dogs. You don't have dogs. to clean up after a robotic dog. They, uh... Have you ever cleaned up after a dog? No, but it doesn't seem... <laughs> it, it seems like an unattractive... It doesn't appeal to you? No, it doesn't seem appealing to me. Okay, I, I think you get over it if you really... If you like the dog. Yeah. I mean, you cleaned up after your children. Occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. I had a discussion with somebody recently. They said dogs are great... You know, their unconditional love and their low maintenance. I said low maintenance. They said, yes, compared to children, they're low maintenance. I think that might be right. Might be right. But they're not as uh, verbal. No, 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 no. I'm not. That's where the comparison ends. Yeah. Uh, but the question is, who's lower maintenance, uh, a young child or a dog? Right. But you need rewards. Yeah. Okay. For either. Yeah. And uh, the rewards with children can be... Yeah, I'm all. I'm into children. Pretty big. Yes, I'm a. I'm in the children. All right, so camp. let me let me recommend something else. So I've recommended uh, going to the Met and going up on the roof, and now um, something you can do in the uh, back at your own home is go to the New York Times website. All right, and uh, there, as part of their close read series where they have somebody do a detailed discussion of a single work of art. You pick out something and mm-hmm. really do a deep dive mm-hmm. in, uh, um, I guess, talking about it, explaining it, musing on it, etc. There's a discussion by Jason Farrago about a famous illuminated manuscript, Les Très Riches Heures du Duc de Berry. And uh, the title of the article is Searching for Lost Time in the World's Most Beautiful Calendar. Okay, so this is not an article per se where you just, uh, you know, where it's a lot of text, etc. It's a combination of the visuals and the text. If you read it on your phone, the text kind of floats over mm-hmm. Uh, the images themselves. Mm-hmm. If you read it on a conventional uh, laptop or um, PC, it's uh, for me. It came out with the text on the side, so mm-hmm. it was not a, quite a as much a you know modern technological marvel visually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a wonderful um, sort of walk through the work now. It's a book of hours, all right? It was created in the 1410s for the Duke de Berry, the John of Berry, okay? And uh, uh, described as the second most powerful man in 15th century France, at least twice, Uh okay? He had a brother and a a nephew who uh, occasionally outdid him, Mm -hmm. etc. But um, it's an illuminated manuscript, so it's hand-painted, really, pictures and words, Mm -hmm. okay? And it's only about 8 by 12. Okay. So it's the size of a piece of paper. And if you look at um, the images, I mean, they're incredibly detailed. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
for something that small. Mm-hmm. And the image itself, it was, the calendar part that he's talking about are pictures that go with the different months and they alternate between the activities of the duke in his castle or with his entourage mm-hmm. and the peasants. Mm-hmm. So in the spring, we'll have the p- peasants planting the fields, etc. Um, and in May, you have the lusty month of May um, courtiers riding off on horses with fancy ladies, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, right out of Camelot kind of thing. Um, and... These were all the, these illuminations were done by the three Limburg brothers. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, they're just exquisite. Now, the one problem with the images in the article is they're not the highest resolution. So when you you know zoom in on some of them to get a better look of the little doggies nibbling on the uh, um, uh, roasted rabbit on the New Year's uh, party table, uh, you know, things get fuzzy. It's not as beautiful, as delightful, as, uh, you know, a more, a better uh, sort of rendition of this would be. But they are fascinating, fun pictures. So this causes Farrago to uh, muse on the history of the calendar Mm -hmm. and the differences between the solar calendar and the lunar calendar. Okay, and uh, a lot of fun facts come up, including New Year's. Now, you, of course, being Jewish, Mm -hmm. um, are aware that different cultures have a different New Year's. Okay, and even the Christian, for many years, Christian New Year Mm -hmm. started on March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation. Okay, when Mary finds out she's about to, she's going to give birth to the Son of God, uh, uh, etc. And in other cultures, you know, it's, it's often in spring, which makes sense because that's a time of rebirth, mm-hmm. renewal, etc. Um, so that I thought was interesting. And, um, you know, and then the, also the history of the, the Romans going to the Julian solar calendar at a certain point and deciding the year is definitely going to be 365 days uh, with the occasional leap, and then going to the Gregorian calendar in 1582, where they recalculate the leap years, and about nine days, nine or ten days in October, completely disappear. You go from October 4th to October 16th mm-hmm. to make up for this change in the calendar kind of thing. So there's a lot of fun little calendar facts like that. All right. You don't look too fascinated. No, no. I mean, I mean I'm interested in the Lumina, Illuminata stuff. I mean, I can, I the can see that. Illuminated, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, amazing uh, detail. And it's a wonderful picture of life mm-hmm. at that time yeah. and what people were like. And they didn't wear underpants, which is clear in one okay. in one image. We don't need to see okay. it. Okay, great. And you know, it's um, so that's that's a fun article. Searching for lost time in the world's most beautiful calendar, written by Jason Farrago. It's a delight visually, and it also you know um, gets you to think about time. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, the I think that is interesting to seeing the Illuminata stuff. Uh, and thinking of it in the context of time, I you know, that sounds good. You know, the fun facts. Yeah, I don't know if that would uh, 
impress me so well, much. Well, I, I think you could go either way with writing an article about this. You could yeah. certainly write uh, a lot yeah. about just the images. Mm-hmm. And it's not like he goes through every... A book of hours, I should mention, is a book of prayers. Mm-hmm. And what prayers... It's the prayers to say at different times of day. Mm-hmm. And it's meant for a lay person. It's meant for... And it's probably meant only for, you know, the Duke. Yeah. It, you know, it's a very private work of art that now we get to see. Right. Okay. Um, Anne Perry died. So... I thought you were going to tell me something about email. No, we'll, we'll do that next we're time. We're running out of time. Yeah. Anne Perry died, and uh, Anne Perry uh, is a mystery writer that... Uh, well, that's how I knew of her. Yeah, we're both mystery familiar writer. with. And you maybe read one or two of her books, and I read none. I read m- more than one or two, but they weren't my favorite. But we all became dimly aware, I perhaps you more aware than I, uh, a few years ago, uh, to the fact that she had been involved in, for what lack of a better term, was a murder when she was a young kid. And my vague memory of it was, you know, well, somebody got killed and she was a juvenile and uh, it was unfortunate and she put it behind her. Who knows? And it, But now that she's passed away, they refocus on what happened. And what happened was kind of horrific, right? I mean... Uh, she helped kill her friend's mother. Yeah. She and her friend. She's her in New friend Zealand. Her friend was distraught because her parents were getting divorced and they were... They were going to have to leave New Zealand. New Zealand, right? And uh, their solution was to kill the mom. Right. They were, they were fifteen and sixteen years old, and it, it wasn't. It was more than a solution. They did it. They uh, took a brick, they wrapped it in a stocking, and they uh, beat her to death. I mean, which is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But also, isn't it a little unbelievable she'd ever be out of jail? Well. No, because that's the way juvenile offenders are dealt with. And this is a different uh, country anyway. So they spent uh, five years behind bars. Maybe they were sentenced to more and they had good behavior. Yeah, I I agree with you. It's not much of a sentence for killing somebody like that. And then they were released on all kinds of conditions, including that they never would meet again. They were told that if they got back together, because they were a bad combination, that they would be sent back to prison. So they never got back together together and this uh and she got a new name uh ann perry and she went out and lived her life uh and became this well-known author and and she was it wasn't that she was you know she wasn't proud of this and the the, she wasn't linked with the story because she had a new name except that uh some years later uh there was a movie made about the incident peter jackson made a movie in 1994 called Heavenly Creatures, starring Kate Winslet as Anne Perry. So it was kind of a known thing that would sort of peek out every once in a while. Uh, it's totally bizarre. It's a horrific, horrific killing. But how do you do something like that and and have any shred of mental health the rest of your life? Um, they, Wouldn't it destroy you? Wouldn't it? it I, I don't know, but it didn't destroy her. They actually have, uh, they quote her at the end of this, and they say, she said later, um, uh, she excused herself by saying that she had been afraid that if she did not go along with the murder plan, her distraught friend might kill herself. That's sort of a rationale. Uh, I don't know if that's really credible. And then it's a quote from her, Ann Perry. In a sense, it's not a matter at the end of judging, she said. 
I did this much good in my life and this much bad, which is the greater? It's in the end, who am I? Am I someone that can be trusted? Am I someone that is compassionate, gentle, patient, strong? You know, if you're, you're that kind of person, if you've done something bad in the past, you've obviously changed. So she was able to work through it and say she changed. I, I, it is crazy that you could do such a horrific thing and just sort of get past it. I don't know. You're looking at me as disbelieving. As I, 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 yeah, it is. But, you know, um, it makes me think I should go back and reread one or two of her books. Okay. Because what is it like to write about, write a murder mystery having committed a murder? Well, that's the deal. <laughs> you, you see things from a different perspective. Well, clearly you see murder as more possible. You see more people capable of murder. You have to see the world that way. If you've done it yourself, right? Yeah, I guess. And you probably are less condemning of the murderer. All right. Well, the final thing is, uh, is something that just uh, only in Philadelphia. Um there's a headline that says thieves in Philadelphia steal $200,000 in dimes. In dimes, Tampa. $200,000 in dimes. You can do the math on that. I don't, where do you get $200,000 There in was dimes? A, a tractor trailer that was transporting uh, coins for the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia that was parked. And these marauders uh, attacked the tractor trailer, broke open the tractor trailer, and pulled out $200,000 in dimes. How do you even carry that? It's uh, where several people were involved. Uh, You know, they they don't have a film of it. They haven't apprehended these people. You need a robotic dog to carry it away. (laughs) You need several robotic dogs. These people are on the lam. They've got the dimes, Samson. The dimes are gone. They got away with it? They got away with it. First of all, they only got the $200,000. How fast can they go? Police found this tractor trailer broken into. They found a trail of dimes on the gravel. And then someone said, I think they're missing some dimes. They started counting the dimes. They got information about how many dimes supposed to be there. They did the subtraction. They were short. They were short. They were were short $200,000. So how are they going to catch these people? Uh, They asked the authorities uh, and they said, uh, well, how are they going to uh, get rid of the money? How are they going to turn it into, into real money? Because it's just too much in the way of dimes. Officer Torre says, uh, that's the weird part of it. How do they expect to use it? And uh, so here's their caution to the public. They said, look, we're out there looking for these guys. But for your own information and protection, uh, I want you to know we're, we're out somebody there. Somebody offers you change in dimes. Well, they're saying, Don't look, take it? This is their advice for avoiding your own problem with the police. If for some reason you have a lot of dimes at home, this is probably not the time to cash them in. <laughs> so there you go. It's, uh, keep those dimes you know, for a little bit I longer. I feel like I want to test that. Till the coast because is Because we do, we do have, uh, since we cleaned out our old house, yeah. there are a lot of piggy banks around, and right? You go, you go to so the I bank. feel like I should go, I'll go to the, um, you know how the Kmart has like go, the coin star yeah. thing? And dump in a lot of dimes. Yeah, and that, that's too clever. And see if... Go, uh, to, go to Wells Fargo, goes to the bank, yeah. hand them a huge thing of dimes, and they'll probably keep us talking while you see the police cars come up. Yeah. <laughs> You know, they'll be on bullhorn saying, we have the place surrounded, Miss Granger. And uh, there you go. You'll be eating uh, federal meals before you know it. Okay, so that's all we've got uh, this week in the uh, podcast, right? See you next week. 
Yeah, this is Tamsin Green. And Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. <laughs>